Burning Bucks. Burning Bucks. Burning Bucks. Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Burning Books, a podcast dedicated to discussing, celebrating, exploring, etc. Great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, I'm excited to say we have an interview with Josh Cohen, professor of modern literature, psychoanalyst, widely acknowledged Freud master, he wrote Grant's book, How to Read Freud and the author, lately, of The Private Life, Why We Remain in the Dark. The Private Life starts with Josh riding the train into Houston Station, overhearing a woman engaged in a rather nasty argument with her boyfriend. It's over. Don't you fucking talk to me. I fucking hate you. Why? Don't you fucking give me why, you stinking bastard. Don't pretend you don't know. Don't pretend. Don't... Don't you fucking pretend. From there, Josh slides into the station itself, where at W.H. Smith's, he finds himself standing at the magazine racks, like one of the men lined up at the Tokyo 7-Elevens after dark, looking at the covers of Heat, Closer, and Reveal. An arrow-tagged, serious tummy points to the slack flesh spilling over the bikini bottom of a soap actress hunched on the edge of a sun lounger. Another, aimed at the ribcage pressing through the skin of a bikini-clad TV presenter, asks, dangerously skinny? Something about the distracted obliviousness of their postures and expressions seems more obscene than anything the dead-eyed glamour models nearby can conjure. These unexceptional few moments have revealed to me my participation, at once resentful and willing, in a culture of intrusion, held together by the unholy alliance of voyeurism and exhibitionism. Nothing, from the near side to the furthest reaches of bodily and emotional experience, should be kept from view. As those few minutes showed me, it's hard to opt out of this culture and the malevolent excitement it stirs up. The rest of the book looks at what we can know and what we can't know about ourselves, and why what we can't know exerts such a strong fascination for us. Cohen looks at his subject through current events, especially news stories about intrusions into privacy, through his own research and practice as a psychoanalyst and Freud master, through stories dug up from his early life, through movies and works of art, and, close to my heart, through works of literature, including by Rudyard Kipling, the poet Jean Amery, the philosopher Maurice Blanchot, Friedrich Nietzsche, Primo Levi, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, He of the Confessions, and through an especially powerful short story by Nathaniel Hawthorne called The Minister's Black Veil. Incidentally, if you do not know Hawthorne's short stories, I urge you in the strongest possible terms to find them. One and a half centuries on, and they are still deeply, deeply terrifying. All this is a way of saying the private life is a great ride, fulfilling both the Aristotelian-sanctioned pleasure of understanding and the commandment of the Delphic Oracle to know thyself. After reading The Private Life, you will understand yourself, yourselves, I should say, much better, as well as gain a sense of the mysterious beauty that exists inside us, even if we often give that beauty our private thoughts and feelings a rather different name. Without further ado then, coming to us from London, UK, via the computer, and therefore sounding like he has an electrolarynx, but one that was made in the genteel parts of North London, Josh Cohen. 
Josh, welcome to Burning Books. Hey, dude. Hey, Josh, how you doing? Yeah, good. Why don't we uh, get right into it? Is that all right with you? Sure thing, yeah. Okay. So I'm going to start with a concept that is important throughout the book, but is often misused or misunderstood in daily life, and that's the uncanny. Early on, on page 11, you write, In his most systematic essay on the unconscious, Freud hints strongly at the unconscious as itself a kind of internal double. All the acts and manifestations which I notice in myself and do not know how to link up with the rest of my mental life must be judged as if they belong to someone else. They are to be explained by a mental life ascribed to this person. In other words, my double becomes the vehicle for expressing an incomprehensible excess in me too frightening to tolerate or even acknowledge. So could you clarify for us what this word uncanny actually means? It is so often used. So the definition is the feeling induced by the alienation of the familiar. So the sense that something that is so familiar, so integrated into your perceptual universe that you don't even notice it anymore, suddenly appears to you as radically and disconcertingly unknown. I think it's very important, and this does run against one of the ways the term circulates, is that it does have to be part of the everyday universe. So sometimes it's used in a kind of sci-fi or fantasy context where it seems to be about strangeness in a way that isn't inflected by familiarity. But it is about the making strange of the familiar, not just of the making strange. Okay. I don't know if you know this book, Atmospheric Disturbances. It's by Rivka Galchin. In any case, it begins with a man coming home one day who is convinced that the woman who looks, acts, and talks like his wife is not or is no longer his wife. Now, in that novel, there's a known cause for this, or at least there's a disease, uh, Capgrass Syndrome. It seems to me, though, that the uncanny is not caused by any one thing. So let me ask you, how does this sudden unfamiliarity that is the uncanny come about? Why does it happen? Or can you even ask that question? I think there are different accounts of the actual kind of causal basis of the uncanny. From a strictly psychoanalytic perspective, the uncanny has to do with earliest memory, as registered from the inside of the mother rather than from the outside. So it's some interior bodily place which is implanted deeply in the sort of the first most primary layer of memory and at the same time which we're alienated from as soon as we start life in the external world so that's that's the the classical psychoanalytic view now you know as with certain theological or religious story it's the kind of story that can be valuable without taking it too literally mm-hmm. I think that it does have something to do with the way in which the earliest memories leave their traces in us. I think it does have something to do with the formlessness of the world as perceived and experienced by the infant without the resources of words. I think there is a sort of very intimate, wordless experience of the world that lays its tracks down in us and which we lose contact with and that I think does insinuate itself very abruptly at certain moments. I see, I see. 
let me step back in a way and ask about the subject of privacy, why you chose it. In the book, you mentioned the phone hacking scandal in the UK and the Levinson inquiry into the scandal, both of which brought concerns about privacy to the forefront of British consciousness, definitely. And since then, most people have come to learn what the letters NSA stand for, and that one million Americans, at least, have access to information that is classified as top secret, and that in a different or maybe related sense, our internet providers gather enormous quantities of information on our movements and proclivities. Did your questions and interests about privacy predate these events? or were they sparked by them? I think a bit of both. I think it's a sort of happy convergence of events. I was invited to write a book by Granter. What I immediately associated to was the way that this question of privacy was circulating in the public conversation, the rage that it induced, the ways in which different positions were defended in this incredibly sort of vociferous way. And I think I had that association because privacy had always been a bit of an obsession of mine. Why is that? Well, I account for it at the head of one of the early chapters in the book, because I have never quite got rid of the sense of childish wonder at the existence of a private self that is the source, really, of our creative contact with the world, but at the same time that divides us from the world that means that we can never be fully knowable to anyone else, and it turns out to ourselves either. I think the reason that psychoanalysis spoke to me is that it just chimed with those very young and very kind of rudimentary intuitions about how monumental it was, really, how extraordinary, how insufficient wonder there was about the fact that I can be right in front of you, you can see my face, you can hear my words, you can ask me any question you like, and yet... Most of me will remain concealed to you. Well, it's not just that I see you right in front of me and there's a part of you that is still concealed from me. You also write that there's a part of myself that's concealed from me, that's hidden away. And this was one of the excitements of the book for me, learning about this impenetrable mystery that exists inside. At the same time, the book and psychoanalysis are investigations into the private life, right? So my question is, what do you hope to see, or what can you see, when you look into the realm that is meant to be unknowable? You know, quite early on in the book, one of the things I say is that the first lesson that I took from, you know, a one-hour literary theory lecture on psychoanalysis was to think outside of oppositions. So one of the oppositions that I think breaks down under psychoanalytic inquiry is the opposition between what you know and what you don't know. So it's not that clinical work is just the repeated discovery of not knowing. I actually can get a little bit irritated by a certain kind of therapy that can only reiterate the mantra of not knowing. Because then not knowing becomes a little bit priestly and a little bit pious. I, I really love Blanchot's telling of, of the story of Orpheus for that reason. Because Orpheus tries to know the unknowable, which is the nocturnal, concealed, invisible self of his loved Eurydice. And for that reason, she dissolves um, when she reaches the upper world, because he tries to see what he shouldn't be able to see. I love Blanche's gesture of absolute radical empathy with the Orpheus that wants to see this nocturnal self, with the Orpheus that wants to see beyond what we're allowed to see of the other person. 
in relation to the clinical encounter, you do find things out. And they might have to do with the nature of the personality. They might have to do with the ways in which a given person plays out the relationships that have shaped the course of their early and the whole of, of their lives. But what you're bringing out when you bring this stuff to light is also a certain obscurity around it. So there's a kind of intimacy between the light and the dark. It's not as if one can say, well, this stuff we know and this stuff we don't know. Particularly when it comes to knowing the, the sort of the deepest interior of the self. Okay, so what I'm hearing in your description of the private life is that it's not permanently or completely unknowable as a realm, but more a zone of potential, of possibility which is in keeping with your earlier description of the private life as the place where our creativity comes from. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. It does make sense. I mean, the potential is not quantitative, if you like. So it's not that we can try to know and we can, we can know so much, but we can't go further. I mean, there is, of course, something of that. But it's that there's a kind of obscurity that surrounds what you bring to light. So what you bring to light is not a kind of discrete, integral fact. One of the great contemporary views on privacy, which you cite often, is provided by a tabloid journalist, Paul McMullen, and he said this at the Levinson Inquiry into phone hacking. McMullen defended his intrusion into people's voicemails by using the old police line, if you've got nothing to hide, then you won't mind us having a look. Uh, he then went on to say, Privacy is for pedos. Privacy is evil. It brings out hypocrisy. While on the one hand you hold up these lines for ridicule, and your book demonstrates that privacy is a much richer world than the one McMullen can imagine, it seems at the same time that he's not entirely wrong. In fact, that what McMullen's saying is true. While privacy is not literally for pedos, it would still seem to be the place where we hide those things about ourselves that we don't want others to see. Okay, there's a lot there. First of all, I like your point that there's a kind of powerful truth in what McMullen says. And where he's absolutely right is that privacy does bring out hypocrisy. I guess the thesis of the book is that access to oneself is actually a source of popular rage and goes some way to explain these phenomena of media intrusion in particular, the way in which telephoto lenses or phone hacking devices are really used to capture any remnant of the self that might be allowed to escape. I think there is something primitive about this impulse to ensure that nothing escapes, as though the thing that escapes, the thing that can't be seen, is maybe the thing that's most dangerous. In other words, if that which is out of sight is that which is most dangerous, most venal, and most corrupt and shaming, then it would make sense that there shouldn't be a corner of darkness left to the human being. Okay, so the picture you're painting of the private life is that it is where our most creative selves reside side by side with our most despicable and shameful selves. And this leads me to ask if the despicable and shameful inside us is actually despicable and shameful, or if those are things we've been taught to call them. I'm particularly curious about this because there's a sense of permissiveness that lurks just beneath the surface of your book. As far as, you know, should we be ashamed? 
I guess the intuitive answer would be, no, of course we shouldn't be ashamed. Of course we shouldn't be ashamed of being creatures who have a complicated polymorphous sexuality. Of course we shouldn't be ashamed of having destructive impulses, even when they take the most extreme forms of resentment or envy, violence against the other, because that's what it is to be a human being, to be a creature conditioned by drives. Now, I have a certain sympathy with that perspective, but there's a version of psychoanalysis which strikes me as being a sort of Chinese whispered version, which says we are creatures of very primitive, excessive drives, which socialization or civilizing mechanisms tame. So it's sort of a civilization of its discontents reduction. Yeah, yeah, it's a certain reading of civilization and its discontents. And I think where the misreading occurs is that civilization is this force that comes from the outside. So we're taught to dial down our sexual or destructive impulses by something external to us called civilization. Now, in fact, Freud's account of the relationship between the internal and the external is much more complicated than that, because we are not primarily internal creatures who then encounter something called the external world. The external world is actually part and parcel of the world that we make. And this is true of even that most rudimentary building block of the self, which is the drive. The drive contains, and this is, you know, a fascinating aspect of Freud, which just so often overlooked, the drive contains its own inhibition. So the drive is not just this voracious impulse that wants to swallow everything, to take everything into itself. It is also the break on that impulse. So the unconscious consists not only of these very extravagant wishes, it also consists of their repression. Repression is something that happens in the unconscious. The unconscious is quite scared of what its own impulses might do to the organism. If we let ourselves be overwhelmed by our most excessive desires and impulses. In that description of the two-sidedness of drives, you're also pointing to a figure that appears all the way through the book, the figure of the double. Within all of us, there's the self we show and the self we hide. The self we hide from others as well as from ourselves. To say there is just one self, then, is to use a misnomer. There is no one self, at least not the way you've described it. There are at least two selves, and they are constantly in some form of interaction with each other. Now, you started your psychoanalytic training 11 years ago. So after this considerable period of training and now practice, I would think your understanding of the fact that we are double has affected the way you look at the world and on any number of levels. What I'm wondering, though, is has this understanding affected the way you behave and the way you act? Yeah, I think one of the things that I've come to love about psychoanalysis as a clinical practice, and I'm talking here about psychoanalysis obviously as a process I've undergone as well as one that I practice clinically, is that it isn't really about behavioural change. It isn't about the conscious modification of our daily relations with people or our daily thoughts. It doesn't encourage a kind of hour-by-hour persecutory relationship with one's own mind where you end up saying, I'm thinking wrongly here, I'm doing it wrongly here, I should be talking differently to this person. That said, 
there is such a thing, of course, as psychic change in, in, in psychoanalysis. There is such a thing as internal transformation. And big changes can happen. The way I think it, it really does work is that it asks you to think about the ways you've learned to relate to yourself and to other people. And to just notice how these deeply internalized modes of relating become the source of your favorite mistakes, your most compulsive ways of repeating yourself. Anyone who goes into analysis, including somebody who comes under the cover of wanting to train, right? anyone who goes into analysis is in some sense a little bit bored of themselves. I don't mean they're no longer interested in themselves. I mean, they're fed up with doing the same stuff again and again. And no amount of telling themselves, no amount of noticing it, no amount of sort of, you know, self or other imposed injunctions to behave differently seems to make any difference. And I think that's when, you know, the, the, the sort of long, hard graft of the analytic process really comes into its own. Because that sort of struggle to make a genuine empathic connection with the ways of being that make you suffer, to say, well, I understand why you do that, that to me is, is very precious. I understand that, although I have to say that when I hear you say the word you in that answer, in any of your answers, actually, I'm also hearing the word we. And developing that now automatic reaction was one of the great pleasures of reading this book. Um, that it gave me a far better understanding of the doubleness of any individual, the face we show and the face we hide, even from ourselves, as well as the strangeness that exists you know, inside us and that we confront unexpectedly from time to time and that we see in ourselves from time to time. In fact, more than from time to time, quite often, really, if we pay attention to the weird and the counterintuitive and the self-destructive things we say and do. My question then is, what did you most enjoy or learn about in the course of writing The Private Life? Oh, now that, that, that's a great question. I think I learned something about my rightly voice. For me, the book is partly the performance of a double voice, a way, at least for myself, of writing out of rather than just about a double self. So, for example, in the autobiographical fragments... What I was really trying to do is, is find a way to talk quite intimately about myself, to talk about these quite dark spots in my own interior life, and at the same time, to be quite withholding, to be quite reticent. I mean, there's very little information in the book about me, you know, for example, my marital status or uh, my family status. You know, I, I've tried to keep external information, that kind of confessional story, out. Kind of convey something about myself from the interior. That play of sort of it's revealing and concealing, that was very important in developing the book, both thematically in terms of the voice. So my penultimate question for you, Josh, it's about something that is a concern both inside and outside the book, and that's the apparently diminishing realm of privacy. Actually, a better question is to ask if the realm of privacy can ever be diminished. The reader gets the sense that privacy is constantly shifting and that even if we live in a more intrusive, more invasive culture, the private world will survive it in some way. No, no, that's the basic point of the book, I think. 
you know, if you if you read Orlando Fig's book on the sort of Soviet attempt to abolish privacy, what is so striking is not just the assault on privacy, but the fact that privacy really is indestructible. That in a way, what drives the increasing hostility, the increasing mania to abolish privacy is precisely the impossibility of the task. That's why I, I wanted to write about pornography as well in the book, because pornography is all about the fantasy of total exposure. But I think the predicament of pornography is that however much you imagine you can expose, there's always something that gets left behind that can't be brought out into the light of day. All right, final question, somewhat related to the subject of obscenity, and that is, are Tottenham Hotspur better off for having sold Gareth Bale? Uh, you know what? They didn't have a choice. You know, this is a very, it's a, it's a, it's a sneaky question because, you know, it's a very sore point for me. Um, ideally, they shouldn't have. They didn't have a choice because that's the way modern football works. There's no way a player with that kind of power in the market can be forced to stay if he wants to leave. It doesn't matter how canny, it doesn't matter how skilled a chair of a football club you are, you will lose the player that wants to leave. It's not working out very well. So from the purely speculative point of view of would they be better off if they hadn't sold him, yes, they would. I'm, I'm not a complete doom merchant about it, but I think this is going to be a difficult season. Thank you to Herr Doctor, Professor and Psychoanalyst and self-professed non-Doom Merchant, who nonetheless sounds exactly like a Doom Merchant, Josh Cohen, for joining us today. And thank you, Josh, more importantly, for writing a book that transforms the person reading it. And what better recommendation is there than that? Thank you, too, for listening. Next up on Burning Books will be a review of The Man Who Made Vermeers by Jonathan Lopez, the story of one of the great forgers of the 20th century, Han von Megren. In the meantime, love to hear from you. Please feel free to send me notes, nasty and nice, either via Twitter at burningbookspod or email. The address is burningbookspod at gmail.com. My thanks to Hakan Ozgan for the music. There are several ways to thank someone. So let's start with the easiest. Teşekkürler. And as always, go Jays. Ian Beck on Radio Litopia, and I hope you might enjoy my latest novel, The Haunting of Charity Delafield, which is published by Bodley Head, part of the Random House Children's Book Group.